Hello, I'm Christina Young and you're back with Book Lounge and Gloucester Book Club. Tonight I'm joined by Zoe and Joe, and we're going to be talking about Invisible Women, which is a non-fiction book written by Caroline Criado Perez. We hope you enjoy it. Just to warn you listeners, there may be spoilers contained in this podcast. Imagine a world where your phone is too big for your hand, where your doctor prescribes a drug that's wrong for your body, where in a car accident, you're 47% more likely to be seriously injured, where every week the countless hours of work you do are not recognised or valued. If any of this sounds familiar, chances are that you're a woman. Invisible Women shows us how in a world largely built for and by men, we are systematically ignoring half the population. It exposes the gender data gap, a gap in our knowledge that is at the root of perpetual systemic discrimination against women, and that has created a pervasive but invisible bias with a profound effect on women's lives. Award-winning campaigner and writer, Caroline Criado Perez brings together for the first time an impressive range of case studies, stories and new research from across the world that illustrate the hidden ways in which women are forgotten and the impact this has on their health and well-being. From government policy and medical research to technology, workplaces, urban planning and the media, Invisible Women reveals the biased data that excludes women. In making the case for change, this powerful and provocative book will make you see the world anew. Oh, thank you guys for joining me again tonight. It's great to have you here to discuss this really, really important book. Caroline Criado Perez's Invisible Women. It's an eye-opening expose on the gender data gap. There is so much to cover in this book. When I read it, there was just so much that blew my mind. I don't know how much we're going to get through in half an hour. We will try, listeners, to wrap it up in half an hour, but there's an awful lot to cover in this book. So we're going to dive right in now with some of the discussion questions. Caroline Criado perez she states in, in her book that the data gender gap not generally kind of thought of as being deliberate or malicious but what do you think she means by that what do you think Zoe I think that she means that when things are assumed as universally acknowledged um to uh quote Jane Austen there a bit um that universal truths and things that we've often held as speaking for all of humanity often just represent the experiences of men and that's something that's not been thought about or factored in or your panel board will be made of all men your subjects in a research experiment will be all men and therefore they're unlikely to have experienced some of the things that affect women um so it's without equal representation on decision boards and within trials and panels you're unlikely to get an experience that then reflects the whole of 
the population as well. I feel like what she means by that is that this is something that we've all kind of not really noticed or, you know, something that we've all accepted and has been going on for decades and decades and decades. Um, so it's not really that men have set out consciously, but it's just the way it is. It's, it's just the way it is for all of us. And it's not until now, until we're starting to examine it, that we can see how much it's biased in favour of, of the male gender. What do you think, um, Joe, about about that? You know, why do you think she thinks it's not generally malicious or deliberate? Uh, to be honest, I think it's very generous of her to see it like that. I think there is, and I agree with what Zoe said, I think there's an element in it of men just assuming that they're in charge of everything and that everything they think of the way of looking at things is the only way of looking at it. Mm. That echoes Simone de Beauvoir's um, mantra, basically, that men think their view of, of uh, something is the universal view. And I think there's quite a bit of that going on here. Very uh, embarrassing and shocking to me as a man to, to read what she says and to, to read the extent to which women's lives are affected by these decisions. And I would say to guys out there, there's no hiding place, there's no getting away from this. This is a problem we've got to overcome somehow. Basically, and the only way to overcome it is to have more women involved in decision making and running things. Are you pleased you read the book, Joe? Yes, I am pleased. I was shocked by it and embarrassed by it, but I'm glad we read it. So the embarrassment is because it's just something you hadn't thought about, or well, it's just because I'm because I'm a man. I can I can I can see how men have created this situation, and I know we shouldn't look at it in terms of. Um, gender politics really but there's no getting away from the fact that men have created this problem and mm -hmm. that's embarrassing it's an historical thing probably isn't it um to be fair and it you know it's contributed to this massive gender gap that we have so far failed to measure really and you know looks like we're now starting to measure what other groups in society do you think zoe might be impacted by these data gaps um, well, as I was saying before we started this evening's podcast, um, I do a little bit of PhD research at the moment looking at um, normality um, when it comes to disability and its perception in stories for young adults, young adult literature. Um, and already I'm starting to see through that, that the terms of what is normal and therefore conversely abnormal or atypical um, completely defines whether or not something's classed as a disability. So in the UK under the 2010 Equality and Diversity Act, a disability is defined as a long-term chronic condition that affects somebody's normal day-to-day -day activities. And already I was thinking as I was reading this book that if norms in society are preoccupied with men's work, uh, what's deemed normal for the male half of the population, then how many conditions and, and support for women with different disabilities are we missing because their symptoms are atypical to the male experience that we see as universal often? That's such a really important point, I think, there, Zoe. Can either of you give any examples of how the gender data gap has maybe impacted your daily life or routine is, is it something you've noticed as you've gone through life it's a tricky one isn't it because i think it is so sort of endemic that we often don't notice it and not until someone sort of points it out in the book when you read about it you think oh yeah i haven't really ever thought about it like that i mean did, did you both feel like that when you were reading the book 
Yeah, I think like Joe said, there's so much covered in this book from disasters, relief to violence against women to small everyday things. I know you were saying, Joe, seems trivial, but even the design of things like um, technology is massively impacted by all male decision boards or they don't factor women's different body shapes, different uses of technology into it. So um, in the book, there's a bit about smartphones and technology um, and how that iPhones are usually far too big for women. For a start, we, we don't have many pockets in our clothes, which is often a complaint. You hear women say, oh, I like your dress. And somebody replies, it has pockets, you know, so, so rare are pockets in female clothing. <laughs> but the things even about the choice of iPhone, I noticed as I was listening to the audiobook on my iPhone, it was the iPhone mentioned in the book. It was the same size as my hand. And I'd chosen it for specifically that reason, for its ease to hold and carry about with me, as opposed to some of the newer models, which are much more technology-based, have better cameras. But size was such a huge factor that unwittingly a gender bias had contributed to my decision in even what mobile phone to buy. So which one did you end up buying then, sorry? Which is oh, one that yeah, I've got the iPhone SE and that's mentioned specifically in the book. It's an older um, Apple model that's now being discontinued. So I don't know what I'm going to do when it comes to my next phone upgrade. If these data biases haven't been fixed since the book's been released, then I'm going to have a phone that's not fit or not comfortable for me to use. It's not going to be as easy to carry. and um, It's going to be a problem, a, a small problem, but still all these little things add up. I absolutely agree with you about women's clothing as well, because if you buy it, if I buy a dress that hasn't got pockets on it, I don't buy it basically because that I'm, I'm always looking for, for dresses with pockets. Mm. I know that I'm going to want to put my phone in it. I'm going to want to put my keys in it. You know, I'm going to want to put, well, tissues and stuff just in the pockets. If it hasn't got pockets, I don't I don't want to know. So if you're out there, dress designers, take note. All us women want pockets in our dresses most of the time. Yes, please. Um, <laughs> Joe, have you, you know, come across any examples in the book? And there are several, aren't there? There are many in this book, particularly that stood out to you in, you know, kind of, I think there's one in the book, which you probably, I know that you've, you've mentioned before, Joe, in our book club meetings about car crashes. The, the use of car crash test dummies based on male bodies, the size of men for cars which are going to be driven and occupied by women as well as men. I mean, that's obviously quite serious because if, you if you're involved in a car accident, you need to be got out and treated, um, yeah. which is not always easy if you're trapped and your, your legs are caught in the pedals or whatever. So for various reasons, um, there's a problem with, with the design of cars for women. I've also thought of something which is superficially rather trivial, but I have talked about it at our meetings before, and that's um, the provision of toilets for women in public places, for example, in theatres and at events and festivals. It's so visible to everybody. It's visible to me. It doesn't affect me in the slightest because I'm not a woman, but it's visible to me that uh, the, all these sorts of places, women are queued up outside the door for a long way back to get into the toilets because there just aren't enough places to go and relieve yourselves. So it actually does take women a bit longer to go. And if you're um, you need to go into a cubicle because if you're menstruating, you can't really deal with it outside of a cubicle. And, you know, you have to take your pants down where with men, you know, it's a bit easier, I think, isn't it? Well, it's a lot easier, yeah, obviously. Yeah. The problem seems to be with the toilets is that the, the planning regulations are 
that there should be equal provision in terms of floor area for male toilets and female toilets. Now, of course, in male toilets, you will have a long row of urinals and you can get a whole lot of men in and out quite quickly. But in women's toilets, it's cubicles and it's a much more complicated business to get in there and go to the toilet. You can only get through a third of the number of people. So the hence the queues. How many of us, sorry, how many of us women have gone to festivals or gone to the theatre and in the in the interval, you know, spent most of the interval queuing up in the toilet queue? Yeah, that's it. Or like you say, there's the opposite problem. You foresee and you know, because this always happens, that there's going to be a long queue. So you either don't drink at the theatre and fully enjoy yourself because then you won't need to go to the loo or you'll hold it in and then be really uncomfortable and potentially cause further problems down the line because you don't want to or aren't able to spend that long queuing, you know. Talking about urinals and toileting facilities, if we think about women in India, for example, um, where the problem is not just that there, there aren't facilities for women um, very much in India outside of the home to go to the loo, there's also a massive safety aspect, isn't there, for women? Mm. You know, that, that, that there's a possibility that they can be sexually assaulted or raped even when they go to the, to the loo. So they don't go and they tend to wait until they can go in groups. Or, you know, and that means that they actually hang on to their urine, which is really bad for them, really bad for their bladders and kidneys, for many, many hours before they can actually find anywhere to go. Um, were you quite shocked when you read that? Story? No, I'm, I'm shaking my head. Unfortunately not. I mean, there were the horrific gang mate rapes and murders of, of two girls who were going to a cinema in India in 2012, which is covered in the book. Um, so I was aware already of some of the protests and the backlash that was sparked in India after that. But I think, again, it's a problem that women face worldwide. There's so much shame and stigma around women's bodies. So even something as natural as going to the toilet opens up all these feelings of inadequacy and shame and that really factor into whether or not a woman can go to the toilet. She has to think about attack, about rape potentially, about whether or not she's wearing adequate clothing to be able to take off, whether she's got enough time, so many things that factor into that decision. So no, sadly, I, I wasn't surprised by that at all. No. Going back to the car crash um, statistics as well, where women are 47% more likely to have serious injuries from car crashes, just based on the fact that the designs very often of the airbags that come out you know, if they do inflate, often hit women in the face or the head. The fact that even when they took into account that women did have possibly smaller bodies, they weren't using a female dummy at all. They were using a small version of a male dummy. Failing to take into account women's anatomy is completely different and that, you know, um, our pelvic area is completely different. So when you're planning a car when you're designing a car you're not taking any of that into account so it's no wonder that women's injuries can be significantly worse than men and you know that that's actually quite scary isn't it i mean how do we change that how do we how do how does that end up you know taking women into into more account do you think well it's only going to happen by having women in control of things and involved in decision making and politically in control in the sense of making laws that require women to be involved in the, the design. And all, all that really needs to happen, I would say, well, women probably do need to be, become 
car designers. You know, we need to have more women doing that job. But also, it, if, if men would just ask women, <laughs> you know, would involve women in the process, even if they're not car designers, if actually go out and do some research with women about these types of issues, surely that would make a massive difference. Well, this is partially covered in the book, isn't it? Um, not only is it noted that there's a gender gap in a lot of data, but reasons given as to why this is, is often that women are anomalous, they're too difficult to study, their bodies are too different with hormonal changes and with variations that actually when a lot of studies, even when they do want to include women, go to research councils and ask for funding, um, they're often denied because either the issues are not seen as important enough or they're seen as too difficult to study with too many variables when you start include women as participants. Yeah, good example of that, Joe, is the medicine chapter that it talks about how most of the drugs are tested, research are tested on men. And not on women. What, what did you think about that, Joe, as a man when you were reading that? Well, that, that is shocking, isn't it, obviously, because if you're giving women drugs that have not been tested on women, who knows what effect it's going to have? Uh, there, was, there was one amusing um, story to do with that, that when they were developing Viagra for <laughs> erectile dysfunction, they discovered while they were trialling it on men, they discovered that it was actually providing strong pain relief women who had really bad period pain would benefit from having Viagra. And when the, the committee that was in charge of the research heard this, they said, well, we're not interested in that. We're only going for a license for use for men's erectile dysfunction. We're not interested in the pain relief fit. So that whole potential benefit for women was abandoned. Mm -hmm. the, the men were in charge of the decision making. The good thing about that now is that um, Viagra is available over the counter out there, girls. Um, so, you know, if you want to try it for a period of pain, you can just go and buy it over the counter. But there is a proviso with that. I think the pharmacist stroke assistant very often asks you who, who you're buying it for. Um, so if you say I'm buying it for myself for period pain, I don't think they'll sell it to you. So you need you need to be a bit careful about that one if yeah. you are going to go and try it. Um, but yes, it has been found to be beneficial for women's period pain, but it's not licensed for that. So that's the reason why it's quite difficult. I mean, you may get your GP, you might be prepared to prescribe it off license. But um, if not, there are other ways to access it. You, you just have to be a bit careful about how you do that. She does say in the book, she, she, there's a statement which is, there is no such thing as a woman who doesn't work there is only a woman who wasn't paid for her work. How true is that? I mean, I just, when I was reading that, I just nodded, just absolutely nodded. Yeah, I'm uh, nodding right now, not that you can hear a nod, but I'm nodding away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think every woman reading that would have gone, yes, at that point. Well, I, I think it's true, because certainly in my own experience and looking back on my mum, how much, you know, she did in the house, as well as working outside of the home, how much she did bringing up her children, how much she did actually of the looking after the house and cooking meals and, and looking after all of us was far, far greater than my dad did. I don't know what your experience of that is, Zoe. You know, do you have similar? Well, fortunately, um, my dad um, is 
a little bit better at that. There are definitely some things where he's said to me in the past, oh, you know, that's a woman's job to sort. And I've challenged him on that. But um, actually, my dad is um, quite an anomaly in the fact that he works in the care industry. Mm -hmm. um, so he works in an industry that's strongly dominated by women. And he's in a role, uh, he does care for elderly people and end of life care um, in Devon. And he goes around to their houses remotely in his car and cares for them, dispenses medicines and so on. And from his experience as a man working in a traditionally female sector, I can see how difficult his work is, how many hours he works, how under-resourced and underpaid the sector is. And after reading this book, I do wonder that a lot of work that was traditionally assigned to women, that is care, food, responsibility, medicines, looking after people and their general well-being, even in roles where now people are being paid for it, they're not being paid nearly enough. They're not being given the big money. In fact, it's minimum wage for a lot of these jobs. And as a society, we still really tend to undervalue care even when it is paid. And I can see that through his example. I agree with you with, with that. I think that's that's absolutely true. Um, Joe, your situation is a little bit different, isn't it, as well? Because you were a single dad for years. So I'm guessing you're, you've had to do quite a lot of the household tasks and the care. Yeah. I, I suppose I have. I mean, I, I, it's quite telling that I, I tend to look on it that I had to learn how to be a mum as, as well as how to be a, to be a dad, and I had to learn how to do the mother's job, which tells you how ingrained these ideas of male jobs and male roles and female jobs and female roles are. Did it give you a better insight into that whole area? I suppose so. It's quite a contrast when I think of my upbringing and my father's role in the family and for example I can remember him whenever he bought a present for my mother let's say a wedding anniversary present or something like that he would get my sister to wrap it up for him because <laughs> yeah. men don't do wrapping up only women do wrapping up you had to learn to wrap did you well, uh, of course that was one of the jobs I had to learn and I'm glad you did you master it in the end or did yeah you? within reason yeah yeah <laughs> not yeah. the just <laughs> good it's good to hear Okay, so she also says, she also writes, failing to include the perspective of women is a huge driver of an unintended male bias that attempts, often in good faith, to pass itself off as gender neutral. And that's what Simone de Beauvoir meant when she said that men confuse their own point of view with the absolute truth. Regardless of gender, regardless of whether you're male or female, has there ever been a time in your life when you realised that something you believed to be an absolute truth was actually a product of your own personal point of view? Yeah, I've um, as you've asked the question, I've been thinking and um, based on the events that have been happening recently with Black Lives Matter, with those protests and the continuing gun violence in America, I've come to see that my assumption that when emergency services and police are on the scene that they're always going to act in your best interest, that they have your care at heart, that the law is always good and on your side and is always just. Um, unfortunately, I have a privileged experience of that because I am a white woman living in the UK. Not everybody else has the same experience, unfortunately. Yeah. So you've really adjusted your perspective over that then, Zoe? Yeah, I've tried to um, see, particularly with the latest gun shootings in Texas, um, I was really disappointed to hear that in the instance of uh, school shooting that rather than going in to save children and teachers, the police actually held back. And it was the mums often of the children themselves that uh, wanted to go in and help. 
I don't know what happened in that case. I wouldn't be able to comment on it further, but that really shocked me and was another thing that made me think, okay, actually maybe my views on policing and on the law are heavily influenced by the protection I get as somebody who's white, relatively middle class. You got any examples of that, Joe? Um, I can't think of anything that specific. I mean, my observations of life of seeing mm -hmm. the way in which women are put in a position of having to do most of the dirty work and the hard work in the home. And is that something new to you? I mean, is that something you've only kind of recently thought about? I mean, would you have been thinking this, say, 20 years ago, for instance? No, no. It's. I mean, 20 years ago, I was probably far more in the mindset that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. As I got older, I think I've become a bit more modern in my thinking and I wholeheartedly accept everything that she says in the book. Do you think it's legitimate to flip the statement that men forget about female specific concerns because they don't have female bodies do you think it's legitimate to flip that statement and say that women forget their concerns because we don't have male bodies do you ever feel like that joe we all think our own problems are are, are unique don't we and mm -hmm. men do have um, medical conditions that uh, don't affect women now, that's not to say that women aren't aware of them. I mean, certainly in, in the case of a man's partner, for example, erectile dysfunction, which is something that only men will suffer from. And also prostate problems that, that are unique to men. Mm. But most men, men's partners or family will know if he's got a problem with his prostate. Do you think, though, I mean, I'm throwing this out there as a bit of advocate here. Do you think, though, that women generally tend to be more aware of stuff that goes on for men in terms of ailments or conditions than men are about women's problems, women's ailments and, you know, things that might just affect women? I, I think they are and they're more concerned about them than men are concerned about women's conditions. Mm. You know, if I am going to um, play devil's advocate for this, what I will say is that patriarchy or dismissal of women's feelings and women's emotions does equally affect men sometimes. I think particularly in the instance where men don't look after themselves and their emotional health, um, feel able to cry or share emotions, to go to the GP and check because these are seen as being overly emotional women's things. I think that gender bias affects us all and it hurts us all um, and actually women although they tend to when you're brought up as a woman you are socialized to care for everybody that's not to say that there aren't issues on, on the other side with gender bias impacting the lives of men and I think in order to achieve more equality we, we shouldn't be afraid to look at those as well. Mm. The author does a really good job in the introduction of stating, you know, these things don't just impact women, they impact someone based on class, on ethnicity, where they're from, how much money you earn or don't earn, all other kinds of privilege. So I think what's interesting about this book is, I don't know if you two were the same, but I was under the impression that even though there's still a lot of inequality at the world, that men and women are getting on more equal footing and I was very shocked and surprised although on reflection maybe not but just to see so many instances of gender bias still occurring across so many different areas 
I think will come as a shock to a lot of people, even if the individual instances are something that have been experienced firsthand. Is this a book that maybe everyone should be aware of, everyone should be reading, including? I mean, obviously, I think as women, we would probably want to encourage as many men as possible to read this book, would we not, Zoe? Um, yeah, that's it. I think the whole point of this is that too often women's perspectives are dismissed as being a niche thing or being just for the women. So precisely that, I think that really helps the spirit and the message of the book to get everybody to read it regardless of sex and gender. Because in terms of going forward, in terms of changing some of this stuff, um, I think we've said before that it's got to start happening at the top, hasn't it? You know, it's got to be, a, a, you know, we can all us who don't have an awful lot of power in the situation can say that it's awful but actually until the change will only start I think when people start to become more aware of it for one thing which this book is great at, at starting off the conversation but it needs to actually start happening from the top and I'm talking about government so in political areas but also in companies in planning design planning of towns even because um, remember she talks quite a lot about that how you know towns aren't really planned around women very very well and there's also stuff in the book about uh, just clearing the pavements of snow because it's by and large it tends to be women who are having falls accidents on icy pavements uh, ending up in hospital needing care for that um, so instead of just concentrating on clearing roads we ought to be talking about clearing the pavements as well um, but those sorts of things are only going to happen if our politicians and our councils and um, our large companies and our design people and our architects start to think about things from a, a women's aspect. Would you agree? We need more women in charge. It summarises that basically. So I don't know whether it's different in countries where they have women prime ministers and women politically in control. I'm thinking here of Julia Ardern and... Um, oh yeah, Julia Gillard in Australia and Jacinda Ardern in uh, New Zealand. Yeah. It'd be interesting to know in those countries whether they feel that the um, fact that there are women in charge has, has made a difference. I don't know. There was a lot of misogyny um, when uh, Julia um, Gillard was in office in Australia. Members of Parliament commented on her red box and often called her misogynistic terms, basically saying that she was uptight, comments on her sexuality. So if the woman ruling the country is getting that in the office, what hope is there for the rest of us? Um, I do agree somewhat that, yes, we need to see more women in power across the boards, but we're already seeing that happen in society. We've had Theresa May as the Prime Minister in the UK in the last few years, um, Margaret Thatcher years before that and um, I don't think that having females at the top automatically means that there's going to be equality. What needs to happen is that people need to stop associating things in such a strict binary whereas the things that have been traditionally women's domain are therefore seen as inferior or unimportant or lesser mm. and then when that infiltrate society regardless of whether we have a male or female prime minister that's when laws will start to change what worries me Zoe and Joe about all of this is that I can see things going backwards for women in some areas as well mm. I don't think we are making progress I mean I'm thinking in terms of America and the abortion rights in America for instance um, and I'm, I'm also thinking of just in this country as well in the UK 
where um, women were breastfeeding in Houses of Parliament, which is now looking looked down at, and I think they're going to stop that happening. Yeah, so I don't. I am worried that we we might be seeming to go forward in some areas, but I think we are also going backwards in in other areas as far as women's rights are concerned, um, and women's bodies and control over what happens to them. This has been an amazing book to my mind. I'm so glad I've read it. Would you recommend, would you guys recommend it to book clubs to read? Yes, I, I definitely would recommend it to book clubs to read. Um, I think it can make you think in quite binary terms of male, female, um, perhaps to supplement the reading. Um, it would be worth looking, as you've mentioned so well in this podcast, Christine, about some of the other inequalities that can be affected by data gaps. Um, but that being said, I do think it's a very important book and it really makes you think about everything from a microscopic level up into government and international level. And it's very useful in that aspect. I was cross. I'll admit it. I was getting angry. I was going to have to put the book down and come back to it because I was getting so wound up in some of the sections. I thought well, I need to go away, calm down about this because it is that kind of book, isn't it? It kind of hits you with all these facts that you've never actually thought about. Yeah. More you think about them, the angrier you get. And um, what do you think, Joe? Is it a good one for a book club? I think it's, it's an essential book for almost for a book club. To be quite honest, it's probably the most important book we've ever read. And it's something that people really have to take on board. As hard as that is, and as embarrassing as that is for half of the population, it's got to be done, guys. I mean, and one of the other things to just to tell you listeners out there that if you are interested in reading the book or even if you've already read it, you can sign up to um, Caroline Creo de Perez's newsletter. She does a weekly newsletter that comes out um, and I think, well, I've definitely signed up for it. Um, if you would, if you want to do that, I can thoroughly recommend that you do. And if you go onto her website, which is, uh, you just put carolinecreodeperez.com into your search engine, you will come up with lots of information and also you'll be able to sign up to the newsletter if you wish to. And I want to thank Zoe and Joe for coming on the podcast tonight because it's not an easy discussion, this one. It's it's not an easy, uh, easy book to read. Emotive for a lot of us reading it, I think. And so, you know, there's so much as well that we could have packed into this discussion that we don't have time to get through. But Thank you so much for being here with me tonight, guys. Our next podcast will be in about a month's time. And we will be talking about um, a fiction book this time. It's Lean Fall Stand by John McGregor. We've read it, just finished reading it with our book club. So it'll be really interesting to um, talk to you guys about what we think of it. So far, I'm loving the book. Um, I don't know what you feel about it, it's a, a joke, because you've actually finished it, haven't you? fantastic so join us next time and we'll be talking about lean fall stand and we hope that you've enjoyed this podcast in the meantime keep safe keep reading and we'll talk to you soon bye for now bye thank you for listening to gloucester book club's podcasts you can find us on spotify anchor fm google and apple podcasts and many more We look forward to having you join us again soon. 